I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Jake Sroffman. He's the president of MetaCX, a new company focused on outcomes-based approach for managing the customer lifecycle by transforming how suppliers and buyers collaborate and win together. Jake was previously the CMO at Pendo and previously on this show in an earlier date when we did a live podcast. And uh, he was before that chief research, chief of research at Gartner. On the show today, we talk a little bit about what it's like to join a company and make the transition from CMO to president and also admit a global pandemic that we're going through, how he's thinking about building company culture, um, some of the things that they're doing at their MetaCX. We talk a little bit about the founder of MetaCX, Scott McCorkle, and what the company is doing, what the vision is for the company. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jake. Jake, welcome back to the show. I think, Thank you, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Last time we talked, you were the CMO at Pendo, and now you're the president at Meta CX. Is that how you, am I pronouncing that right? That's Meta correct. That okay. Is correct. So well, first, congratulations. Thank you. And you made the, made the change from uh, CMO to president, which I want to get into in a minute, but why'd you make the change and, and what made you interested in joining Meta CX? Yeah. You know, what we built at Pendo was 
was pretty darn great. And I'm super proud of the team I built and the work we did. And I look back at that experience as really one of the highlights of my my career, if not the most important thing I've done. Learned a ton, loved it. And by virtue of that experience, it just it created new opportunity. And this one was pretty unique. I certainly had interest in taking on more responsibility and, and sort of exercising different muscles. But even more importantly, it was working with an entrepreneur who I just really, really admire and think very highly of, a guy named Scott McCorkle, who I got to know when I was a Gartner, when I was a Gartner analyst, and he was president of Exact Target, and then subsequently the CEO of the Salesforce Marketing Cloud. And when we started talking, it was just uh, obvious that there was just such a strong match there. And um, it became one of those moments where you only live once. And in the broad scope of things, you, you need to take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. So here I am. I love it. And um, I mean, Pindo was, uh, to your point, I mean, you had a great time there. That, that's the closest thing, I think, to um, riding a rocket ship that you can get other than working for Elon Musk. It, was, it felt that way. Honestly, I won't lie to you. Like there is nothing about that experience that didn't feel surreal to me. It was amazing. Well, you mentioned Scott, so maybe maybe we just talk about Scott for a second. You just mentioned he was the you know CEO of Salesforce Marketing Cloud. What can you tell me about him and listeners? And what's the relationship like that you're starting to form now as as the president and him being the CEO? Yeah. So when I got to know Scott, this must have been like eight or ten years ago, I guess. As I said, he was president at Exact Target. I was Gartner analyst. We spent some time together in like an advisory capacity. And he struck me as someone, and I didn't know him super well, but the impression that he made on me was someone who was had a formidable intellect and just a really smart visionary who obviously had an amazing track record and career and was, despite all that, incredibly humble and low ego and likable and human and like had all of those very appealing characteristics that you would hope for in someone that you know and spend time with. And that those things could coexist. And I know it's cynical to suggest that they can't or even don't often, but to me, it made an impression and we stayed in touch. So in this new context, he's a technology guy, he's a product guy. He's also a company builder. He's had an incredible career starting and growing companies. But I've taken on go-to-market and customer-facing responsibilities. So I'm responsible for sales and marketing, customer success, professional services, technical support, where he focuses on product management and engineering and finance and ops and fundraising and board. Got it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That's a good split too. And I mean, I guess the natural question follow on is how do you feel like the CMO role that you previously were in is prepared you to kind of take on the the added responsibilities of president? Yeah, it's a great question. I think some of it is maybe circumstantial to where we are as a company, earlier stage company. And a lot of the early lift with this company is market development and product market fit and positioning and go to market and launch and demand generation and all the things that I already do and have done throughout my career the parts that are net new to me around managing, owning the number and managing sales, et cetera, are very familiar because I've been so closely adjacent to it, really sitting at the same side of the table with a CRO or head of sales, because that's what's expected of the modern marketing leader. It's like you need to be, you live and die by the number in the same respect that salespeople do. Maybe that's a slight overstatement, but 
there certainly is accountability to driving revenue and understanding the mechanics of the selling motion and a coordinated go-to-market. So it doesn't feel um, terribly unfamiliar, but it is a it is a bit of a you know new muscle for me to exercise, new challenge. I mean, it seems like it, to your point about where you were sitting before, it can seems like a natural, seemingly natural evolution. Maybe that's a little too strongly worded, but it doesn't feel unfamiliar. It honestly, so far, and I'm only a, you know several weeks, three three four weeks into this, it feels like it fits like a glove. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have both joined companies in the middle of a global pandemic. And I'm curious, how are you thinking about the importance of just company culture, your teams, in midst of all the craziness that's swirling around? Not to mention, we still have to get business done. 100%. I mean, a couple of comments on that. The first is, it seems like it's just, it's felt like a really productive time personally for me, despite all the weirdness of what's happening right now and the fact that we're not seeing each other, not sitting in the same location. I'm working a lot and I feel pretty productive and, and engaged. And I think a lot of people are feeling that way. It might be a coping mechanism, but that's the general vibe is that people are more engaged maybe than they would be in, in the office. I don't know if that's commonly felt, but that's been my lived experience. In terms of how you build a culture in this environment, it's definitely, you need to be even more intentional. I, you know, my, my feeling is that cultures don't happen by accident anyway. You need to be intentional from the beginning. And in terms of the values you care about, how you live those values, how you hire and fire, how you celebrate, how you learn together, like all these things need to be pretty intentional in order to build the sort of company you're trying to build. And in this sort of environment, you need to be even more deliberate and over communicating and finding times for ritual and ceremony and bringing teams together, albeit somewhat awkwardly via Zoom. Like we have every other Friday, we do a, a happy hour. We call it Force Fun. And, you know, it's a little awkward. We lean into the awkward. We, we sit in it together as a team, like everybody else on Zoom. But it's better than nothing. And I think that the point is, is that we're doing it. And I think that people get it and appreciate it. One fun thing we're doing right now is we have a 100-mile challenge for the entire company to get to encourage people to go outside and exercise. And every night, I log my miles. And we've broken off as teams and created sort of a friendly competition to um, engage in physical activity. Yeah, I love that. That's definitely outside the box, outside the office, outside the home. I really like that because I don't know about you, but there's there's definitely a thing that's called Zoom fatigue. I was, I think there's been a couple of days this week where you know it's been six to seven hours on Zoom calls, and it's more intense than being in six to seven hours of meetings. And I don't I don't quite understand the psych the dynamic of it, but it's true. I think I think it's one hundred percent true. And I made a very similar comment to someone today. And I said, the thing that I think is more taxing about sitting on a Zoom call is it demands more concentration. You need to maintain, A, your physical proximity to the, the screen. So you're sitting in a chair all day, tethered your chair and eye contact and all those other things. In a meeting, I can get up and walk around. You know, there, it doesn't feel quite as intense. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very true. Well, I think thanks for sharing the the uh, hundred mile challenge and the the forced fun concept. I, I've done those happy hours myself. Let's talk a little bit about Meta CX. What is it, and what what are you guys trying to achieve? Yeah, the the idea is pretty big. So the idea is that suppliers and buyers have been for a very long time misaligned around the definition of success, the definition of value. Big part of this is because 
companies, you know, salespeople get a bit of a bad reputation at times for selling an empty promise, and it isn't necessarily their fault. What happens is after they close the deal, there's sort of this collective memory loss that happens within many organizations as you move into sort of delivering on that promise and then holding yourself accountable to value realized over time. It's just there isn't any rigor around that in most organizations. So it leads to dissatisfied customers. It leads to customer churn. So MetaCX has created a sort of a customer experience layer for the B2B customer lifecycle that allows sales reps to more effectively align, align with prospects around sort of a shared definition of success from the perspective of what are the outcomes that your customers are trying to achieve. So let's start there. What's the pain or problem you're trying to solve? Let's document it. Let's build the case around that, use that as the basis for how we close the deal, but then let's also use it as part of the handoff into the onboarding process, into the implementation cycle, into customer success. Now there's a record, there's a history of all of that knowledge around what customers care about, and you're able to track it and organize around it and support it and importantly, measure it. So MetaCX also has a data integration layer that allows you to start to light up those outcomes with live data to actually see to what extent your product or service is moving the needle for your customer. And that way, at renewal time, it's a very, very clear picture of whether you have or haven't achieved goals. There's sort of two bad options that tend to happen within SaaS companies. One is your product isn't delivering value. And the second bad option is that it is, but you just can't see it or prove it. In both cases, it creates doubt. And where there's doubt, there's risk for churn. So that's, um, that's sort of how we're addressing it. Got it. It sounds, so I've done in the B2B world, when I say B2B, not not SaaS B2B, like you're talking about, or, or you've worked in as well, is uh, but more like industrial B2B, you know, the chemical companies, those types of folks. And there was this notion, we did a lot of work with clients on um, quantifying value propositions through the sales process. This sounds very similar, but maybe much more integrated into the actual sales process and the product itself. Yeah, that's exactly, I think you're nailing it. And even in the world of SaaS, there's plenty of quantifying of, of value in the sales process. But the problem is, even though a lot of enterprise selling organizations have been trained on value selling frameworks that allow them to ask really smart discovery questions, to identify problems and pains, to attach those problems and pains to create a more persuasive argument to buy which I think is kind of what you're describing, like quantify the, the impact, that's helping them sell more effectively, but it's not necessarily helping the customer because after the deal is closed, the thread is often broken. There's kind of that collective memory loss because the handoff is often botched and all that knowledge isn't transferred and much less measured. Like companies aren't going back to those outcomes and saying, hey, how are we doing against those goals? If they are, they're doing it in a very defensive posture, as a mad scramble at the 11th hour, as a way to retroactively paint a picture of value in order to kick save a deal. They're not doing it in a, any kind of systematic way. And that's that's what we're trying to enable. Got it. Okay. Okay. And are you then, is your primary um, customer market, is it other software companies? Is it cloud-based software companies or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of, we have a sell side and buy side opportunity. Our initial go to market is focused on the sell side. 
and within the sell side, mid-market and enterprise B2B SaaS companies. And we're also getting some traction with like IoT companies. So companies have lots of distributed endpoints that, that are generating data that they need to aggregate and contextualize and make sense of. It seems to be a really interesting target profile for us. But yeah, sell side first, buy side buy side's also interesting too. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So you're coming out of stealth mode at this point in time. I was reading the note that was sent to me, and it, but it, you've already raised $14 million, which is no small chunk of change. What's your job one, if you will, this year in, in launching and, uh, and coming out of stealth mode, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. So the company's been in R&D mode for the last close to two years, building a platform, a really impressive platform with lots of lots of technology innovation. So this year is really about coming to life as a as a company with a real robust go to market. So launching the company and we're going through sort of multiple launch phases now, building toward real market presence. So you start seeing we we've we've started to activate our content engine and our communications channels, launching a full featured website. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A general release of our product, which we've we've pegged to the early June timeframe. So first wide commercial release of MetaCX. Uh, so there's sort of this graduated building that's happening as we're starting to go to, as starting to sort of wake up as a as an active go to market and customer success. I mean, we eat our own dog food, so using our product with our customers to make them wildly successful to build the flywheel from an advocacy perspective, huge part of what we're doing this year, and also just kind of making it through. Like this is these are weird times. We're in a pretty fortunate position, and I think we have a. Uh, resilient value proposition that's timely relative to the challenges that companies have today, but it's not the easiest time to build a company. So this year is is really getting our footing for next year as well. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, you've got a full plate just in what you described too. <laughs> uh, coming out of the out of the R and D mode, are you? looking for beta customers, trial customers? Are you, uh, or are you in that mode? Do you already have some? I'm just not sure. We already have um, commercial. We're already in market commercial. Yeah. So we're definitely post beta. I guess that's considered um, gamma. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Something like that. We are in marketing market. We have um, 18 paying customers today. So early days, but not insignificant. We're learning a ton. 
Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Well, and um, it is an interesting time to be cha- thinking about you know launching in a broad sense and trying to build that revenue pipeline, if you will. How are you thinking about it, and how would you, knowing where you came from, uh, which was a rocket ship and and not pre pandemic <laughs> times to now pandemic times and and trying to trying to do it at the same time just curious how you're thinking about it yeah i mean it's different it's it's um it's certainly not the the easiest moment as i said but it's also hardly impossible and and there's a couple of reasons why the first is that sort of life life goes on and so does business and there are new challenges and and we need to be as relevant as possible to those new challenges. And I think we have a really relevant value proposition that helps companies do a better job at closing new new business. Because, you know, if you show up the old way, which is based on the assumption of a pretty healthy deal flow, you're going to be in a much worse position. If you show up with a completely different posture to your customers, selling on the basis of outcomes and putting some skin in the game, shared risk, shared accountability, really adding a degree of transparency and trust to that sales process, it's going to help you win more deals. We think that's really important, particularly now. These companies just have much less deal flow. Top of funnel is just not healthy. And then from a bottom of funnel perspective and a customer retention perspective, being able to prove it, to put data behind the promise and remove the ambiguity around whether customers are deriving value from whatever you're selling is also very relevant to the moment. So while it's it's definitely not an easy time nor a particularly good time for many slash most companies, there are still plenty of challenges that are both normal run rate challenges for any business at any moment in time, and then also the new challenges presented by this economic climate. Well, I think I just had my unlock moment as I listen to you talk about that and, and I asked that seemingly good question, but maybe a a stupid one now that I had this unlock moment in my head was that there's probably no better time for you to launch Meta CX than right now. Just given the razor sharpness that you can drive through the sales process for your customers. I think it's a good point. I think it's an optimistic, very hopeful note. And um, I like it. I think it's mostly true. There's also this other belief that in economically difficult times, Hey, there's a couple of things going on. It creates time and space for companies to think differently. So this is the time of transformation. This is the time of thinking about the things that you couldn't get around to when business was robust. It's also a time of thinking about what it's going to look like on the other side. Because my feeling is that this was a bit of a reset and we're not going back to the way it was. What we would all probably describe as the subscription economy, our belief is that it becomes the performance economy. And if you can't prove your value, you're going to be forever at risk because, well, we will we will get back to normal. Uh, things will feel less unusual than they do today. I think that some of the some of the the assumptions, the operating assumptions of business then, will not return. Very good point. Very good point. It makes me quick aside. I was listening to another podcast and. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name for some reason. It'll come to me eventually. But the important part is that he owned restaurants, was an investor in restaurants, but also invested or started or, or founded, I'm not exactly sure the right term, this uh, software engine for 
restaurants and hospitality industry called Talk. So anyone that's listening can Google Talk and figure out who I'm talking about and can't remember their name, unfortunately. But um, it was interesting because Talk had uh, worldwide customers. And as the pandemic was coming to land, if you will, in, in Asia, they started to see their bookings because they're kind of like an, a different version of open table. Um, for restaurants. And so they could see their bookings go from, you know, 95% to zero. And it was just like this tsunami effect. And he just, you know, goes on to describe, you know, what that meant because he's running restaurants as well as the software company. And the pivot that they made in the restaurant business was usually successful, you know, going to takeout and, uh, and carry out orders. But then developing that same capability with inside talk within a week opened up a huge market opportunity for them. And to your point, just about like trying to drive value and keeping your eye on value that you're driving for your customers in spite of what otherwise looks like doom and gloom when when everything goes to zero, what's the worth of your your software platform? That's amazing. Exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I wish I could remember his name, but Talk is the software platform. I will check it out. It's almost like an early warning system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And for him in particular, because uh, he has, you know, the restaurant, which I can't remember either, I think is in Chicago. And it's like one of the most awarded highest in like art form type restaurant spaces. So you know that you're going to take a hit when this is coming through, but being able to pivot and then pivot both businesses that he was in, it was, it was phenomenal, but it was all about value, right? Like how do we, if our software is next the next day worthless how do we drive value creation and how do we how do we make sure that we're doing that which is what what you guys are helping people solve it's kind of cool well it's always fun to see what you're up to um and i i expect nothing more than uh success as you've always demonstrated so i'm going to keep my eye on meta cx and where you guys go next i really appreciate it Ellen. yeah well uh one of the things i do like to do on this show is get to know you behind the microphone and we know each other a little bit but listeners don't know you yet so i thought maybe we can uh ask a few questions uh, that i like to ask folks so my first one, which I love, and listeners know this because I say it almost every time I say the question, uh, is, is there an experience of your past that defines and makes up who you are today? That's, um, it's a great question, an experience of my past. So maybe this is too personal. So I was kind of like an apathetic student for much of my life. And then I went to college and it clicked. And it clicked that this was sort of a game. Like there was an, an opportunity to really engage in a process and see how effort led to output and outcomes. And it was sort of this, there was like an elegance to it. And you saw yourself getting better and, and doing well. And, and it was fun. It was a whole lot more fun than being disengaged. So I think I, I sort of learned to, and I've treated my career that way as well, by, by the way. And it's not raw ambition. It's just, it's more fun to be passionate and engaged than not. And if you can measure your performance against yourself and, and find the best possible performance that you can achieve, it's actually a, a really rewarding experience. So I think it's um, that's probably the best way to think about like what makes me tick based on my, my early experience. I love it. I love that example. Well, what advice would you give your younger self if you were starting all over? Uh, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. That only comes with age. Exactly. <laughs> no, I think it was, it wasn't until maybe I was like 40 or 38 or something where I woke up and I said, you know what? It's going to be okay. Like that thing that made you successful the day before will be there the day after. In fact, it only gets stronger in some ways. It's not a depleting resource. Yeah, no, exactly. 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 Well, good. Well, so this next question, I, we were talking a little bit before, and I, I may have to give you a pass on the price point, um, giving your passion for something, but because I imagine what I know what your answer is going to be. Uh, so has there been an impactful purchase of $100 or less in the last six to 12 months that you just can't stop talking about? I racked my brain on this one because the, the only thing I could think of less than $100 would be a book. Over $100, probably one of the top five best things I've ever done is Peloton. It sounds like a total overstatement, but kind of life-changing, like an amazing product, an amazing experience. And it's both a great workout. It's a, a mood elevator. Like it just puts you in a great frame of mind. Great way to end the day for me. I've gotten fit. Er, I just love it. It's They've just really nailed the the whole experience, the the hardware is great, of course, but also the instructors are just really talented, really engaging. The music is great. They tell you you're crushing it. You believe it. <laughs> are you Are you doing the live or doing the, um, I think they have recording as well, right? I think I've done 80 something classes since I bought it and I've never done live, not once. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. I know people that love it. I thought you were going to go crazy and like keep going on and on. I was going to have to cut you off like those orange orange theory people or like me, um, if you get me going on CrossFit, although I'm, I'm, I'm mourning my box right now, which is what we call our gym. I, so I've never, I should try that. Looks intense. It's phenomenal. You do need a good coach. Otherwise you will hurt yourself. So I could imagine. And I certainly would. Yeah. Well, all right. Two more questions. Curious as a marketer, marketers tend to be kind of students of what's going on around them. Are there any brands, companies, or causes that you're following or you're, you think people should be taking notice of right now? Right now, like specific to this moment? Well, it doesn't have to be. No. Two brands that I love that have always spoken to me. I just think that they're brilliant and what they stand for and or what they've done. The first is Yeti. Yeti's just remarkable. I mean, they've taken, starting with a cooler, of course, but then they've targeted multiple other categories. And these have been commodity, low consideration categories that they've fundamentally reinvented. They charge 10x the price point. And for some reason, I just, I buy whatever they put in front of me. I just love it. And I think a part of it is their storytelling and their content marketing is just stunningly good. That's a good idea. I mean, I've got probably, and I'm drinking out of a Yeti right now, actually. It cost you 38 bucks. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't buy any of my Yeti, but the thing that it does say is like, I know of the brand. And so when I've gotten these things as gifts, they're valued. Like I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not throwing this tchotchke away. Right. Cause I, I know it's really good. And then Patagonia speaks to me just always has. I really, um, Yvonne Chouinard, I think is a super original guy. I, I just like what they stand for. I like the aesthetics. I like the quality. Don't love the fact that it's been co-opted by Silicon Valley, but what can you do? <laughs> well, those Yeti and Patagonia go together, right? So maybe it says outdoors. It, they both say outdoors. I think Yeti is more, is it, is it fair? Can I say redneck chic? <laughs> 
yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That makes sense. It's like the the grown up solo cup. Yeah, exactly. No, that's it. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, uh, last question for you. Um, as a, a former marketer, you can remember those days only a few weeks away, a few weeks ago. <laughs> what do you feel like is the largest opportunity or uh, threat to marketers today or going forward? I'm going to be unoriginal and say data for both. It's the opportunity and the threat. It's the threat because in most cases, marketers still wrestle with dirty data. So their ability to use it, the way they want to use it is often constrained. And it's also, and when they can't, it puts them at risk. And it's the opportunity because when they can, when they find opportunities to really tap into that data to more effectively target and importantly measure impact and get better, it's a superpower and it gives them a seat at the table. Awesome. Well, Jake, it's always fun to talk to you. You too. Yeah, genuinely. Thank you. I can't wait till the next time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Alan. Really appreciate it. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.